welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. Uh, we've recovered from our 150th <laughs> episode, or me and Owen have. Um, but, thanks to everyone who listened to that. It was... <laughs> yeah, well done if you made it to even yeah. halfway, I think. It's yeah. more than achievement. Even half hours. Yeah, by, well, yeah, exactly. And that was edited down from an over six hour long recording. <laughs> Why? Why? Uh, At that point, surely you'd just be like, yeah, fuck it. I th- it kind of did get to the okay. end. I feel like I should apologise because towards the end we were just bladdered and rambling and it wasn't good. And you people give me <laughs> shit for taking these podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Bladdered yeah, and rambling is my favourite Skinner song. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was a joke. Wasn't very uh, funny, but it did the job. <laughs> Hi, I'm a guest. I'm Jackson Tyler. You probably don't know me. So I should probably introduce myself because... I don't, this is already a disaster. This is a disaster. This is great. Hi. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. Callum Petch. Hello. And Jackson Tyler. Hello. Who's on, I believe, for the first time on a on a proper podcast, not as part of a special that's been edited in. Is that right? Uh, yep. Yep. And you, so, and you mean proper, and you mean proper as in fail critics pro- um, episodes proper here instead of proper as in the other podcasts you do which aren't proper for some reason here. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I mean it in both ways, Callum. <laughs> I mean it in uh, every single implication you can possibly <laughs> gather from that. And, and sorry, hang on, I'm taking this, I'm taking this off on tangents here. You're supposed to be shit hot at shutting these tangents down, Steve. I, I wing it. <laughs> uh, anyway, straight into the quiz. I lost. Owen got revenge on me for making him watch Kill Keith <laughs> with, with, with basically the, the the greatest comeback since Lazarus and made me watch Kill Keith. Yes. And um, my, my review of it is thus, it's, it's the worst thing committed to film. <laughs> I have seen better storylines played out in porn. Wow. I've seen, I've seen better acting in porn. This, this isn't shocking. <laughs> no, no, it's no. not like a revelation or anything. The film starring Keith Chegwin both has a bad plot and bad acting. I no, thought I'm, Tony I'm, Blackburn would be a bad actor. I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just more, more saying that I actually, I, I bet there is more quality storytelling in porn than a lot of movies. This is a theory I have. It's the same, the same reason people like wrestling more than they like a bunch of films. Because hmm. there's, there's, there's only one no... way to test a theory. Well, no, uh, there's no... Le- Apparently, I'm coming on this podcast to intellectualise porn. Hi. Because <laughs> there's, there's nothing... There's no, like, pretense or... There is a very functional honesty to the storytelling in porn. <laughs> God, if you can make it through about laughing, you're on a good street. <laughs> well... Oh, the quiz! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Owen's reading out uh, some... A, a filmography for someone and it's it's Callum and Jackson versus me it is yeah so you basically just have to guess who it is before Steve does um, and that thus makes me one point ahead again so I'm going to start off in 1986 they were in Platoon Steve <laughs> yeah was it oh, there's loads of people in Platoon was it someone like Johnny Depp, who cameoed in it a little bit at the start, or a little role nope. in it. No, nope. no, it wasn't Johnny Depp. Either of you two going to have a go? No. Nope. No? Okay. In 1988, they were in The Last Temptation of Christ. 
I've no idea, so... No. No? Okay. Uh, well, okay, moving on. Uh, in 1996, they were in The English Patient. Nope. God. No. No? 1999, they were in Existence. Shit. No. <laughs> oh, hang on. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I was looking up the Wikipedia page of Existence not eight days ago. Uh, Don't you guys mean Existence? Yeah, with the yeah. Z. And the, yeah. yeah. And a capital X and the lower KC. Yes. 1999, yeah. Callum. Yes, I, I know, I know. I was correcting your pronunciation. Shut up. <laughs> in uh, 2000, they were in Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah, no, I don't know. No, okay, it's going to start getting a bit easier. 2002, they were in Spider-Man. Toby Maguire? It's not Toby Maguire. Willem Dafoe. J.K. Simmons? Willem Dafoe. Well done, Sorry. Jackson. Sorry. Mm. I, I said Toby Maguire as a joke. And then <laughs> I actually know. Yeah, Toby Maguire in platoon. That's what I was thinking. That. <laughs> Maybe it's just like a little baby, but like one of those little prop babies they brought on set there. Yeah, with... Charlie Sheen waggling his thumb underneath it like an American sniper. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well done, Jackson. First Thank time you. on the quiz, and you've won. I'm, I'm glad. I don't have to watch Kill Keith, do I? You don't have to watch Kill Keith. No, no, no you have to watch Nativity 3 instead. Um, no, 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 fuck off. <laughs> uh, yeah. okay, whoever wins overall needs to make me watch Nativity 3. Just put that out there. I'm watching Owen make Kill Ke- watch Kill Keith again. <laughs> this is just going to go back and forth forever, isn't it? You know, you could just watch good movies and then talk about them on a I, podcast. That's what Steve initially planned to do, as it turns out. I tried. I tried to. I made them watch a good film, and, and it got thrown back in my face. It's more fun but... to make you watch a crap film, to be honest. <laughs> it, it is, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, now okay. we have the, and now we have the equivalent of the cursed videotape from the ring. Yeah. Exactly. We're just anyone, basically, if the guests lose from now on, the, the punishment is they have to watch Kill Keith before they're allowed back on. I think that's a new rule. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, that's going to be at the start of my summer of movies. That'll be the first thing I watch. <laughs> I, will, I will watch that before I watch any Kurosawa movies, just to rub in the salt of how oh, yeah. uneducated I am. Yeah. Well, we did put out on Twitter today to try and help you to get some uh, recommendations. Nobody did say uh, Kill Keith, but... You know, you're free to hey, start but with it, that. But it's like unsaid. It's the unsaid thing. It's unspoken. We're all kind of like we all acknowledge it there as, an, as a potential choice. It's exactly yeah. It's there. It's just yes. haunting you in the background. Yeah. Following us on the Anyways, I'm assuming you picked Willem Dafoe because he's in John Wick, which is one of our reviews this week. Owen, am I correct? Well spotted. Yes, I was very subtle, wasn't I? Yes, mm. very subtle. Yeah. Right, straight into the news now. Then, uh, and with the announcement that. Furious 7, Fast Furious 7 has been smashing box office figures left, right and centre. It's been announced there's going to be a Need for Speed 2 released. High five, Callum. Yes. <laughs> we, are, we are here. Little Pete had a vision, you guys. Little Pete had a vision. That vision was we, made, we, made, we made one day see that vision. Can he actually fly a helicopter? The question must be answered. Is he going to be allowed to go to his back to his job now that he's stripped naked and walked out of there? <laughs> Can the police ever figure out who Michael Keaton is, despite the fact that his face is prominently featured and he doesn't actually hide his voice or anything? Is Imogen Poots going to continue to be acting in a far better movie than everyone else? <laughs> <laughs> this is suspenseful. Yeah, you're building hype for it, I can tell. 
Hey, 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 hey. I, actually, no, as far as I want, I'm instead trying to make it set in China with Chinese actors in I mean, China itself, basically, there. This, you say that like it's a bad thing. They say we need No, no, it's not a bad thing at all. It's just... We're co-producing in China. I'm like, great, good. Make it happen. Yeah. I, 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 like, I like more diversity in films here. Sad that we won't see Imogen Poots in it again, because bloody hell, she just knocked that out of the park in that last one, but... Is she not going to be there again? Well, I'm assuming not. If they're trying a whole, I'm assuming they might try the the equivalent of Tokyo Drift, just like try change. You got the cast. Oh no, I assumed I assumed it was Aaron Paul goes to China. (laughs) 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 The need for speeds are going to China. (laughs) (laughs) I've not seen the first one. I've no interest in seeing the follow-up. You should watch the trailer. The first trailer release for Need to Speed. It is. It's pretty fucking brilliant. It's 90 seconds long, and it's just Aaron Paul, Batman, reciting a prayer of racing vengeance as a choir of angels. angels, Just. And he's like, everyone who wronged me, I will have revenge. And then. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's brilliant. From the, from the computer games it's based on, isn't it just like a racing game? Like any other racing grand. game? Five, five grand! Five grand! Five so grand! There was a racing game called Need for Speed Most Wanted, which came out in 2005, which had a bunch of live action cutscenes. They're uh, amazing. Yeah. They had them in Carbon as well, <laughs> this time with uh, Hilo. No one cares about from, Carbon. With, with Hilo from Battlestar Galactica. And, um, oh, yeah, they, they weren't as good. No, because in, in most modern, they were the most gloriously stupid things. And before this Need for Speed movie came out, everyone was joking that Razor Callahan was going to be in it. Because that's what they named their bad guy, Razor Callahan. <laughs> yep. You can see wow. why everyone He's who loved... five grand. Five grand. You can see why everyone who loved talk was ready for Need for Speed. Even if, <laughs> even if it wasn't really what you wanted. There were no giant keys. But, wow. Yeah. I, I, I haven't even seen talk, and I was also hyped for that movie. What the hell are you? doing you, oh, whatever you said you were yeah, yeah, you're supposed to bring me a copy of talk when you next come oh i am aren't i okay add it add it to your list callum no somewhere. i need to hook him up with a copy of talk yeah he's gonna he's gonna hook me up oh he's gonna hook me up this and i will hook him up with two full seasons of legend of Korra, which i'm gonna force him to watch oh i need to watch that other one anyway moving on anything, anything yeah. else happened no 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 one's died nothing's been announced it's been a boring week and we're gonna win yeah. part one there in part two, we've got what we've been watching, where we take a look at films we've seen yeah. in the last seven days or so that aren't necessarily new releases. So, in part two, then, it's what we've been watching, where we review some things that we've seen that aren't necessarily new releases. I've explained that once before. I've explained it every time, so everyone who listens to this should really know what it's about now. Exactly. Um, Owen, you have seen a film called The Dark Crystal. Why don't you tell us all about that one? Okay. Um, I'm just going to start with a disclaimer because James and I believe you as well also called me a grumpy bastard for not liking the Muppets. I don't really enjoy the Muppets. You monster! I Thank you. called you a grumpy bastard just because you're a grumpy bastard. But that is also true. <laughs> that is the case. However, there are a couple of Jim Henson things that I do enjoy, and one of them is his film from 1982, The Dark Crystal, which is kind of like a fantasy story set on another planet, I believe, actually, about some gelflings 
who are trying to repair a dark crystal which has poisoned their land and fight off the Skeksis and carry out a destiny and all the kind of things you expect in, in a fantasy story like this. But yeah, it's entirely puppets. There aren't people. Only, like, people in costumes. And it's one of those films that um, I saw years ago. I saw it years and years and years ago on VHS. One of the first films I watched with my wife, who was my then-girlfriend, actually. And that was the first time I watched it. And I kind of liked it, but felt like I'd missed out because I never saw it when I was really young. However, I re-watched it again in December, and it was on TV the other day. And I just found myself watching it again and think, actually, I really, really do like it it's just so much fun i think the the puppets are just incredible the work that jim henson did was unbelievable some of the like tiniest details he puts into the landscapes into like the expressions on the on the characters even the voice acting just it's perfectly perfectly suited to it and yeah so although i'm not a fan of of like the muppets i do like the dark crystal and i like labyrinth as well i'll just put that out there because who doesn't like labyrinth really i mean come on any of you guys what's your opinion on jim henson sorry i still can't get over the fact i write for a website with an editor who doesn't like the muppets i feel like quitting right now <laughs> well yeah okay i kind of don't it's not that i dislike the muppets i just don't like <coughs> the muppets does that make sense you know, like, I've seen a few of the older episodes, mainly because I just pick out when they've got a celebrity guest that I like. Like, they had a Halloween one with Vincent Price. So, of course, I've watched that one. Yes. But, yeah, I don't know. They've never really done it for me very much. And I still haven't even bothered with the new films, even though I know they've been rated really highly by just about everyone. Look, if nothing else, you should watch The Muppets. Yeah. Well, but... I think I've been banned from that by Steve. He sort of banned me from watching it because I would just be a miserable bastard and ruin it for him, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think that's right. Okay, right. okay <laughs> fair enough, Fed Steve. Good call, good call. Smart judgment. <laughs> and I banned Owen from the, the Star Wars Episode 7 podcast as well because he would that's ruin it. Possible. Yeah. Me hey, hey, that's the, same, that's the same week that Peanuts is out and I'm not much of a fan of Star Wars, so you're going to have to get me on there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Why did you laugh? With the tune of the McDonald's I'm Loving It jingle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing call there. That was great. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. yes, the Dark Crystal. Um... Yeah, it's a really good kid's film, but it's, and it's just so creepy. So creepy as well. The, 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 I've mentioned the voice acting. The Skeksis things are just horrendous. And there's a bit where it melts, like the Emperor is dying and he's on his bed, and it just kind of dissolves on the on the bed and it's just horrific i mean it is really quite quite dark for um for like a kids film essentially you know a sort of family film and i'm kind of glad in a way i didn't watch it when i was really young because it's one of those that would have scarred someone for life you know like some people who've seen like the wizard of oz when they were a kid and just get terrified by it uh dark crystal has exactly that same effect it's just so uncomfortably weird but like i say i loved it i just have a genuine like affection for it and i think that's mainly because you can really tell the love and the effort and the time and the sheer like imagination that's gone into creating it so yeah if you catch it on tv or if it's on netflix or something it's definitely worth a go okay uh i have seen a couple more harry potter films in my bid to be forced through watching all, all which ones eight. steve 
I well, <laughs> I, the quest the quest got off to a slow start, so I'd only seen the Philosopher's Stone up until this week, and now I've seen two in the space of a week. Which I have seen. Well, I'm working in order, so I have seen uh-huh. the second one and the third <laughs> one. I've seen the worst one and the best one. I've seen the Chamber of the Secrets and the other <laughs> one. The other, the next one after. Prisoner that. of Azkaban. That's the one. That the Alfonso Cuarón one. The, yes. Maybe the best final shot in any movie ever. <laughs> it's so stupid. What is it again? He's flying out to the camera, and it like ends with the line, like blur lines being drawn across Harry's face as he's on the broom. It's the dumbest cut to credits <laughs> ever. Wow. Um, but yeah, they 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 seem to get better as the the series progresses, from what I can see. And that doesn't that doesn't that's not a trend that holds. No. <laughs> Sorry, ha- hang on. Are you trying to say the Chamber of Secrets is better than the first film? It yeah, it's a little better. Yeah, that, first, that first film is unwatchable. I, no, but I found the second one unwatchable. I mean, I can I can see why kids would like him, like and, and maybe people who like the books. I can't I can't see why other people might like them. For my limited experience with Harry Potter, which is like very limited, I've seen like one or two films and I couldn't tell you which ones they were. But people who read the books seem to don't like dislike the films. That's my experience from yeah. people. That uh, they cut out loads of stuff and it's just a bit... I don't you know. kind of have to cut out stuff. I mean, Lord of the Rings cut out lots of stuff from the books. Right? It would have been like an eight-hour film. It was an eight-hour film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty long. But I'm not not enjoying them, but I don't think be enjoying them at the same time. Yeah, I think one of the, the problems is that at least two of the three characters are just really, really annoying. Emma Watson's really annoying, but I think her character might meant might is meant to be. But I don't find um, Ron Weasley like he's not this like he's meant to be stupid but lovable. He's not. He's just stupid and really annoying and a bit moany. It just really annoys me. The only one who's the, the least annoying is Daniel Radcliffe as, as Harry Potter. We've um, got some of the other characters in it hamming it up, like like uh, Alan Rickman is hamming it up as Snape massively. Because if you need to save a boring film and you've got Alan Rickman there, then obviously you're going to have Alan Rickman and the living daylights out of stuff. So yeah, and he and he is, and it's and it works. It's it's brilliant. He's just really over the top and exaggerated. And um, one other thing I'm not Alan Rickman basically. Yeah, one other thing I'm not understanding about the whole thing is from from what I knew about it going into it. You're not meant to say the name Voldemort. Everyone says it. <laughs> like loads of people just say it, and then, then but it's meant to be this big thing. Oh, you're not allowed to say it. It's, it's bad. It's like swearing or something. It's like dropping the C bomb. And they're all saying it. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, yeah, but I've got nothing to add. Yeah, uh, nothing, nothing to add really. Um, <laughs> that's just like a mic drop like you just I was like yep, yep okay, I've got, I can't follow what kind of you follow that nothing I can talk yeah. about Harry Potter's 2 and 3 if you want me to talk about Harry Potter's 2 and 3 it's up to you I mean have you got anything to say about them or is it just no because no, Harry Potter 3 is like a really good well made movie and Harry Potter 2 is complete trash or, uh, from a butt because the way they construct the movies in the first two is very literal from the book and they just make things happen and um, 
the, the like the events in the book happen and there's no way to get invested in them there's no moments where you're you care about anything that happens to anyone but the first scene uh of prisoner of azkaban is uh this long shot of harry under his duvet in the dark trying to like do a magic thing whilst dursley dad prick comes in <laughs> And like yells at him, and he like has to hide, and and it's the only, it's like the first moment in all of those movies that you actually start to care that Harry might in some way be trapped because you don't ever feel it. His in the, in the previous two, his inevitable chosen oneness is like a sign from moment one, and there's no tension to anything. But the they make the first film in such a way, and they construct the script in a way that like cuts way more of the book, but focuses on making Harry a, uh, Harry a character that you can root for. And that's, and they, they never, they, they do that a bit in six and seven, but four's terrible. Uh, five's okay. Six and seven are fun. Six is just mean girls for like an hour. <laughs> so it's the best one. And then seven's like, they just talk in a woods for two hours. So that's great. And then eight's boring as sin. This is my opinion of Harry Potter. There we go. That is uh, Harry Potter wrapped up now. Um, yeah. we'll, move, we'll move on then to Jackson. What have you seen uh, that you want to review? Ten, well, a review, but uh, <laughs> Tenacious D, The Pick of Destiny. The Pick! No, I, the one, I, he did this off mic as well, and we told him. <laughs> um, but he did it again. Sorry, it's like a refact, I can't help it. Uh, you should. So, <laughs> that movie is good fun because it's like, it, it's it's just a 90s shitty stoner comedy film made in 2006. <laughs> the only reason people hate that film or dislike it is because it came out when it came out. Uh, but watching it again, it was like rediscovering this lost, ridiculous cult classic with with a great soundtrack, this commitment to earnestness that, <laughs> like, throughout. Um, there's a scene early on where Kyle's, like... Jab Black thinks Carl Gass is... Uh, they're the members of Tenacious D, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> thinks Carl Gass is like some kind of rock and roll superstar, but then he hears his mum calling on the phone, and it's like a reveal that he's just a shitty guy living in LA, failing. <laughs> and it's this like, genuinely affecting moment, because even though it's a very childish, silly movie, it's just, you know, Jay, Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back or something, but better crafted, because uh, they're... Be- better movie makers than kevin smith and the moments of their friendship being expressed is are just full of heart because it's clear that the people making this are best friends in real life and this movie is like a celebration of the goof times they have together and that all comes through on screen as well as it being just a dumb poop joke comedy uh with some of the most ridiculous music to ever grace the scene. Also, uh, one of the best actors of all time stars in this movie, and that is the kid at the beginning who plays young Jack Black. <laughs> Perfect. 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 I don't know where they found, found this kid, but they probably just cloned Jack Black and... <laughs> and aged him out. up. Yeah, aged him up, because Jesus, it's it's very good. Also, incidentally, been... um, the director for Tenacious D film is Liam Lynch, who is a better director than Kevin Smith. Putting that out there. Uh, throw a brick and you'll find a better director than Kevin Smith. Is a quote. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't make that quote. I believe that quote is attributed to Kevin Smith. 
He's done good films, though, hasn't he? Kevin Smith. Dogma's pretty good. I love... I have a uh, place in my heart for everything up to and kind of including Clerks 2, so I'm a stalwart Kevin Smith Mm. defender. He can't direct for shit, though. (laughs) Uh, uh, does, this, does this mean you're like on the edge of your seat going Yoko is going to be the time he finally turns it around no but this time <laughs> this time he's going to do it I can't, he's got to he's got to no not even thinking that a little bit but no Tenacious D the Pick of Destiny the second Jack the second best Jack Black musical what what After is it School of Rock After School of Rock of course, of course. Yeah. thank come you yeah, come on thank come you, on Owen what Owen was I said School of Rock. Yeah, that was me. Steve. It was Steve. Oh, Steve Ben. Steve. <laughs> Directing Steve. your anguish at me over that. That was. It's like School of Rock is pretty good. I do. I do quite like School of Rock. The only thing I don't like about School of Rock. Pretty good. The only thing I don't like about School of Rock is the fact that I remember it was up for the same award as Shaun of the Dead that year and beat Shaun of the Dead to like best comedy, and I was furious. But otherwise, wait, you yeah. put stock in the Empire Awards? I'm assuming it's the Empire Awards. I can't remember even which award it was, but I was, yeah, kind so of annoyed. See, that, remember, see, so you're getting angry over nothing, basically. Well, he, I'm getting angry over nothing. He remembers being angry back in the past. I'm sure the anger is long gone. And <laughs> if he's still holding on to that, oh, 2004. Yeah. Oh. That's about three. Well, um, Callum, oh, you're the one left then to review and watch from watching. So what have you seen? Uh, I'll talk about Shut Up and Play the Hits then. Um, Show Play the Hits, which is a music documentary slash concert film by um, Dylan Southern and Will Lovelace, who did the Blur documentary No Distance Left to Run from back in 2009, I believe, 2009-2010, which incidentally is a brilliant documentary you should watch if you get a chance. Um, This is for LCD Sound System, and specifically the... 24 hours before and after their final uh, their final last show at Madison Square Garden, which was huge at the time for being a big cult band who were calling it quits, like like stopping, like going, this is it, this is the last gig, we're not going on anymore. And so the film itself doubles as both a document of the um, of the show itself, and then attempts to look at the idea of a band like of a band stopping when it's time of of james murphy aging of regrets of life post fame etc um it doesn't do as good a job of that second part as it could do because of the whole like micro time scale kind of thing like there's really not a lot you can do in the space of the 24 hours either side and Despite the constant interviews that James Murphy has with um, writer Chuck Klosterman, I believe, um, peppered about, it still doesn't really get a decent like angle or insights into these things. It works better as a concert film, as a really, really well-shot concert film. Um, and especially the way as well that Southern and Lovelace dig into little micro-narratives in e- like, like in, in each song there as well. Like, whilst the song's going on, it's not just a document of the band, it's a document of the crowd, of how these music touches people. Like, during um, Us V Them, there's a like the camera kind of finds and then constantly cuts back to this young couple who's who's pretty much spent the entire song just like reveling in the music and eventually just passionately kissing and things like that the interplay between band members on stage and then footage from backstage between segments where murphy like is trying to have a good time because it's essentially a goodbye but at the same time has to run a show a big complex show you get little cuts there um so yeah, it's really good at that. Not as good at the, um, again, the fame aspect of that there. Pr- again, primarily because of the um, time scale, it, mostly, I believe. Although it does manage to hit a wonderfully affecting moment when James Murphy goes back to his um, rehearsal space and he's just confronted with just, like, everything over the last few years and kind of just hits him. 
Um, but otherwise, it's a really well done concert film, and also I'm a huge fan of LCD sound system, so of course I'd say that the music's fantastic <laughs> up there. But um, yeah, no, uh, w- worth checking out if you can, um, especially if you can get the Blu-ray as well, which not only comes with a film, but also comes with f- um, the three-hour interviews, which may be interesting, like that sort of thing, and also the gig in its entirety, like all four hours spaced out over two over two discs, and that's absolutely worth your time. So, I yeah. love it when they do that, when they actually put the full concert on. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know why they split it over two discs, seeing as um, there's clearly enough room for four hours on one disc. The first disc shows off, because those interviews end up taking over three hours worth of content. But um, The reason is bitrate and uncompressed audio. Oh, that, that, okay. Thank you, Jackson, for explaining <laughs> that there. Uh, but yeah, no, like, if you can't pick it up on that there as well, it's, uh, it's really worth watching. Probably more for fans than, um, non-fans, but, but hey, if you don't like LCD sound system, then what the hell's wrong with you? So, Callum, Callum Petch there getting all music got, like, music dictator <laughs> over you. I don't like and LCD it, sound system. Many, many You've heard one them. song by them, so shut up. You're not qualified to talk. <laughs> I've heard more than one song, and I don't want to hear any more. I've heard too I many LCD really. sound system songs. Yes. We're not talking about LCD sound system right now. The last thing I want to do is argue with you about bad music. Uh, We we, we will touch, we will pick this up another day. Believe me. Yes, on on a music podcast, preferably, because no one cares here (laughs) (laughs) about your petty arguments about some band that I've never heard of. (laughs) I won't show up. Cameron's sitting there on his own, like, who wants to talk with me about LCD sound system, guys? (laughs) I'll just, I'll just argue to an empty chair like Clint Eastwood. Oh, timely references. <laughs> this, is anyway. why, this is why you should not allow Jackson on podcasts. He shows me up, okay? He's better than me. No, I'm just a general heel. I'm just generally... <laughs> no, but he's also better at me at stuff. But look, there, I, I said it. It's on record. I disagree with this. Anyway, <laughs> um, we'll, we'll end what we've been watching there. And up next, we've got our new release section where we're going to be looking at John Wick, uh, The Duff, and Fast Furious 7. Time for the final segment of this podcast now, where we look at the new releases in cinema this week. First up, Owen is going to take a look at John Wick. Yeah, so... John Wick. Well, it was actually um, released in the US in October last year, and yep. seemingly most of the rest of the civilised world as well, according to its IMDb page. But it's taken an age to come out over here, and before I sort of go on to review the film, I am just a little bit fearful that it won't get a decent enough box office return out here in the UK now, because I, I know people who've uh, either downloaded it illegally or, you know, it's available to buy from Amazon in America, I think, and get it imported or Amazon in France or something like that. Yeah. Um, not just so that, got... not just that, it's also out the week after Fast and Furious 7. Well, yeah, so, uh, we'll come on to that, Callum. Don't worry, we'll cover that. That's wait, fine. wait to drop the fucking ball, Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's taken until, like, no, April 2015, so that's about six months for it to come out in the UK. And I also, like, the other thing about that is I suppose I'm, we're kind of lucky that it's um, already trebled its, like, $20 million budget in box mm. office returns before the, like, 2014 was even finished. It did really well worldwide. So that's that's a good sign. And, you know, it was originally due to come out here in January. But, you know, 
Oscar season. So basically it was going to come out and compete with things like The Theory of Everything and Birdman and all these films that were supposed to be, you know, the big films at, at that particular time. So it got pushed back to April and is now, as Callum just said, up against the fucking juggernaut that is Fast and Furious 7. Is it just called Furious 7? Or yes, Fast, just Fast Furious and Furious 7. 7 here, Furious 7 everywhere else. Ah, gotcha. Right, okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, even when I went to see John Wick on Tuesday, even then the cinema was fucking packed out with queues to the door with people booking tickets for Furious 7. And it came out, like, last weekend on a bank holiday weekend as well. So I just can't believe how successful that film has been. I, but, I can. I can. I can. <laughs> okay, but we'll well, discuss we like good that movies, later. so... Uh, you say that. Uh, <laughs> you haven't seen any good movies, Callum, as we've discussed... So, okay, so I suppose, like, we're meant to feel lucky as well that it's actually getting a theatrical release, but that just seems kind of shit because it should be getting a theatrical release. We shouldn't feel, like, privileged that it's been shown here in theatres. It's the kind of movie that I want to see in the cinema. It's the kind of film I know other people who I talk to want to see in the cinema. Not fucking, like, weeks and months of shit like the, the last Hobbit film. And, you know, I mean, I kind of enjoyed Battle of the Five, Five Armies for what it is. But honestly, who the fuck was still paying to see that in February? I mean, yeah, well, anyway. Hobbit. The, the last Hobbit, yeah. Well, I anyway. believe the first showing was still going at that point. Hey. <laughs> That's a good joke, okay. <laughs> did we make that joke the last time we did a podcast of reference for Hobbit being in cinemas? It's not a very original joke. The Hobbit is long <laughs> as a concept Are humor. we going to start a review now? <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so, yeah, I am going off on a tangent, so I'll get back Shit hot, Owen. Shit hot. So, John Wick, directed by David Leach, although he's uncredited, apparently, and uh, Chad Stahelski, who, uh, both of them are arguably most famous for their stunt and action choreography, uh, particularly on The Matrix, which they worked on. But, you know, John Wick is, bizarrely, it's only their first feature movie as directors. Um, but I don't think you could tell. I don't think that was obvious. I thought they were very accomplished. The, the direction was just fantastic. It kind of reminded me of The Raid. Not in terms of like having a plot that's similar or anything like that. But it was just so fucking like brutal. And it didn't shy away from showing you stuff like mobsters getting shot in the face from close range. So, you know, it, it kind of matched that brutality that The Raid had. And that's the sort of film that it reminded me of straight away. But to quickly summarise the plot, it stars Keanu Reeves, who was also, of course, in The Matrix, as the title character who is an ex-hitman for a Russian gang in the US who's managed to do the impossible feat of retiring from the game. He then marries a woman who passes away of natural causes, leaving John Wick alone and a bit sad and depressed and all that. And then, however, he gets a puppy, which she's left him as like a final gift so uh you know he won't be alone and he can grieve with this puppy apparently this um, most adorable fucking puppy just yeah <laughs> which is then stomped to death by some hoodlums who break into his house and steal his car uh and thus begins the process of john wick getting back into the business tracking down the chaps responsible and getting his revenge um so obviously it just absolutely had to be a violent, gory film. And I can't, I can't emphasise it enough, by the way, just how, like, it's completely and utterly violent. If you've seen the trailer, then you'll see blokes having their necks snapped whilst dangling off the side of a, you know, kitchen sideboard, or, you know, legions of goons painting the walls a new shade of brain. It's just, you know, and astonishingly, it's only a 15. Um, so, you know, if people are looking at the, the, the rating and thinking it's just going to be a, a toned down, a watered down, sort of taken three levels of guff, because it's not an 18, 
then you'd be mistaken, I think, because it, the only reason I can think that it's not an 18 is because there's no, like, tasteless, gratuitous, full frontal nudity or sex scenes. But everything else that you would expect in, of an 18-rated film is in there, I believe. So, hey, yeah, hey, so hey, Get Hard had a, had a gratuitous shot of a male penis and was still rated 15. Well, then I have no idea why it's only a 15. But and, anyway. yet, and, yet, and yet, once again, let's remember, Fifty Shades of Grey was an 18 and at no point featured full frontal male nudity. Just, you know. That's true. Fifty, yeah. Yeah. 50 Shades of Grey featured a woman making noises, so can't have oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gotta protect yeah. the kids, gotta protect the kids. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, before it sounds like I'm really, like, too much in love with John Wick, I do like it, but there are a couple of, like, issues I had. So, firstly, I really liked Keanu Reeves in his straight-to-video martial arts film, uh, from last year, the which got cinema released pretty much everywhere else except here because of course exactly, exactly, yeah. I haven't seen Forty Seven Ronin, so I can't comment on that. But you know, I'm still a bit iffy about Keanu Reeves, even though he's in his sort of revival period. So what? Well, yeah, Reeves he's perfectly. Songs. Yeah, yeah, he's perfectly suited to the role of John Wick as this cold, emotionally challenged, blunt killer, but. Yeah, I don't know. His delivery of some of the dialogue... The dialogue is brilliantly hokey. Completely suits the sort of film as well. But it just kind of felt like his delivery was from a different movie. I don't know. It was very stilted and, you know... Not everything he said. Some of the, some of the dialogue w- was good. Some of the uh, conversations he had with uh, Lovejoy himself, Ian McShane, they were rather iffy. They weren't some of his best moments. But I did love his relationship to other supporting characters. And the idea that there's just no business zone at a hotel where all the contract killers can gather and not cause any mischief with each other is also a brilliant idea that's put in there into the film. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's in this hotel where he has a, a, a very brief confrontation with uh, Adrian Palaki, who's otherwise known in the film as Miss Perkins, which was great. You know, it's very cool, effortlessly cool, I would say as well. And it's just funny in its dryness as well. Um, but yeah, otherwise, you know, those are only sort of minor gripes, really. Otherwise, I just thought John Wick was fantastic. Michael Nickvist was was great as the mob boss. Willem Dafoe as well, of course. I mean, when is he anything less than good anyway? But, James yeah, Bond, he... Everything or Nothing, the video game. Beyond Two Souls. Also a video... Apparently, video games. Video games are not his forte. No. <laughs> okay. But in this, he's very good, and I do like him as an actor. And, you know, it was just a very enjoyable, entertaining, full-throttle thriller. And I said on Twitter yesterday after I came home that, you know, it just bullseyed every target it aimed at. And I still stand by that. I, I don't think it let up at all at any point through the film. It was just incredible. I mean, really hard to watch. Like, there's a bit where he falls off a balcony, which I winced at. I really, literally winced when I saw that in the cinema. And, you know, it, it, is, it also knows about its... There's a bit of cheekiness about how silly the plot is. You know, the fact he's getting revenge on a whole gang because they killed his dog, even though the dog thing is, of course, a metaphor for something else. But, you know, it's just relentless. I loved it. I'd encourage as many people as possible to go and see it in the cinema whilst it's whilst it's still there. And it comes out on Friday this week. So, yeah. yeah. Brilliant um, film. Uh, and allow me to retort. Um, I adore the living hell out of this movie. I think it is a wonderful breath of fresh air for the... Um, like for American action movies, um, especially yeah. after like like being flooded with years of of, Le- of boring Liam Neeson style vehicles and stuff like the fucking Gunman and Tacfreen and Run All Night. In the last three months of those, and then finally John Wick is here to remind us all of, oh hey, this is what an action film with characters and a exactly. world, an action that you can see looks like. Isn't 
Because um, one of the things I love about film is the way that it's, it looks gorgeous. Like, mm. careful attention the is colors, paid... colours, everything is brilliant. Yeah, careful attention is paid to every shot. Like, ev- everything, even the action scenes. Uh, like, um, uh, like Leech and Stileski, um very much enjoy put shooting action, like, relatively, like, like straight, static. Kind mm. of haywire uh, like like the way they shoot things in haywire, you know, a kind of like minimal yeah. shake of a camera, art like arty arty ways, so that every frame the means the opposite of Jason Bourne, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, like and then if the camera does shake, it it still doesn't hide. Like it doesn't like dis- display the cinematography or anything. Right, it's still carefully controlled. You know, like the way that shaky cam should be deployed. But there, um, I think Reeves is actually fantastic here. Now, admittedly, I really like Keanu Reeves anyway. Like, I, f- I find him interesting. He always picks mm. interesting films. Even when the films suck, they're, like, interesting to look at and why they suck and like that. And I think he does great, great work here as well. Like, he, like, because the way that he's able to commit is this kind of, like, focused, seething bowl, barely held together bowl of pure vengeance mm. as well. And as well, the way that um, he essentially conveys just, like, this quiet grief over, like, the death of his wife. Um, in the first, mo- like in the mostly wordless first like ten minutes or so as well. Mm-hmm. So like he does, and there's also like he gets a little monologue in the middle, which which spells out for any viewer who didn't already understand that the dog is a metaphor for you know <laughs> for hope and for hope and his yeah. wife there. So that's like, in a way that's actually that was actually a rather bit terrifying. Like just me just sat there like whoa whoa he's intense. I never I don't think I've seen Keanu Reeves as intense in years. He's amazing. Like, like he's great. All the supporting cast are huge fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Michael Blo- um, Nick Verst does outstanding work there. Alfie Allen is wonderfully despicable as the douchebag as the douchebag son Yosef. But, yeah, um, yeah. Like is is the target of John Wick's vengeance basically there. Um, the world itself, I love. I love. I think it's a really well developed, interesting world. Just like all the little customs and the way that it does things about that. Especially the way that it's all in the background. It, like the main story is John Wick. And you have all these things, but they don't over-explain everything, and they don't crowd out the film. Like they're kind of just there, and you take them as they go along. Like especially the first introduction for cleaners as well. Yeah. Um, like like the way you contact them, the way they do things like that. The way they, the film doesn't stand there and go this is, and openly shout, "This is what we do. This is how we do it." it just kind of does it, and especially keep up. I like that. Yeah, I it like reminded that. me a lot of like Korean thrillers. I think you know, yeah, the, the stuff that's produced. Outside of America and Britain as well. Britain's not great at revenge thrillers. No, but yeah. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Like, but like, I was watching John Wick. I was thinking, this is what Run All Night should have been like, basically. Like, they, yeah. like they have relatively similar plots of like of one man trying to get trying to get revenge over like what coming after somebody's son and stuff like that. There um, of old friends now being pitted as enemies due to circumstance and things like that. But John Wick works because it also like it's goofy and it's fun. Um, like, I, like, I had a lot of fun with this. There were lots of laughs from members of the audience and multiple times yeah. as well. Um, but it also takes itself seriously. Like, the dog thing, again, is not just, like, what plays as ridiculous in a trailer there, which instead was also what made me go, yep, okay, I'm sold. Um, <laughs> it's played, like, it's played for genuine, like, emotional strength and seriousness in the film. Like, the film doesn't undercut itself, no. like, for its emotional work. It always, like, commits that. And that's why I love it. It's a, it's an actual film that, you know, it's, for people who like action films, essentially. For people who like actual action films. Like, like the opposite got... of Fast and Furious, then. So, oh, uh... good sir, do not get me started <laughs> yeah. just yet. Shut up. But you've got a review coming up on the website, haven't you, this week? For... Yes, I will, be, I will be penning it, either as soon as we've finished here, or first thing tomorrow. Hell, it might even be up by the time this podcast is up. Who there knows? we go. So, yeah, yeah. so people can anyway. go and uh, read that. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, no, you, you should... 
you should all see John Wick. It's fantastic. Okay. On to the next film that we're reviewing then, and that is the comedy The Duff Scene by Callum. Yes, or to quote Very.com, Bridesmaids meets Mean Girls, from somebody who clearly just decided to pick two female-focused comedies and shove them together and call it a day. Is it, is it yeah. Bridesmaids meets Mean Girls? <laughs> no, 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 it's a teen comedy. Like, like, that's the thing, like, like, it's obviously, like, you know, yeah, yeah, you've seen Clueless and Mean Girls and stuff like that before, haven't you? Like, it's those. I don't know whether Bridesmaids thing comes into it. Maybe, maybe they mean it as a kind of, oh, it's a funny women's film, in which case there's a whole other, sorry, I'm getting angry at, um, reviews again. I mean, let's, so let's move on to reviewing. Uh, right, so featured directorial debut of Ari Sandel, who did some short films uh, a few years back, um, specifically, uh, I think it was West Bay Story, um, which won a, uh, 2007, Best um, live action short uh, at the Academy Awards, if I remember. Um, hang on, I'm going to do my own fact checking. Oh, West Bank story. There we go. 2006. Um, stars Mae Whitman as. Oh, and it's also based on a novel as well, apparently. Stars Mae Whitman as Bianca, who is a senior at high who? school. Ha 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 yeah, ha. Sorry, that's me just shoving in an arrested development. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm a fan of Arrested Development, okay, but, but <laughs> Mae Whitman, Whitman is better than lazy Arrested Development jokes, okay? Uh, yeah, okay, full disclosure, I adore Mae Whitman. I think she's amazing. Like, I think she's amazing. She has a filmography that most actresses of her age will kill to have. Yeah, I liked um, her in uh, Scott Pilgrim. She was really yeah. good in that. Yeah, yeah. Katara from um, Avatar as well. Um, that, that, those things. And Lil Susie, Johnny Bravo. Things like, she was also in Perks of Being a Wallflower, but we don't like to talk about Perks of Being a Wallflower. <laughs> um, anyways, so, yeah, but yeah, like, again, full disclosure, I adore Mae Whitman. Just letting you know here. Um, so anyways, she starts as Bianca, who is a senior in high school, um, and has two hot, like, has two hot popular best friends, um, uh, played by Bianca A. Santos and Skylar Samuels, um, but she herself doesn't really seem to fit in, even though she wants to, because she's ultimately snarky and kind of awkward, um, not a drop-dead stunner, like her friends, and also kind of has interesting stuff that don't endear her to any particular group and such. Um, one day at a party... Her, her, her perpetual frenemy slash nemesis slash neighbor slash childhood friend of sorts, um, Wes, played by Robbie Amell, um, cheerfully informs her that she is the duff of their group, of her group of friends, um, which stands for designated ugly fat friend. Um, with him specifically noting that the duff doesn't have to be ugly or fat, but it's the friend that makes their other friends look hotter and cuter by comparison. Like they're the approachable one. Understandably, Bianca is horrified by this. Um, but the paranoia of the, of the idea gets to her, which leads to her breaking off of her friends and trying to reinvent herself as somebody who isn't, like, duffy, dragging, dragging in um, a very guilt-stricken Wes to help him out. Will she learn that labels mean nothing, if only mean anything, if you prescribe meaning to them? Will she and Wes become closer to one another after spending so much time together? Will the guy that she has a giant crush on turn out to actually be kind of a dick? Will the head bitch of the school, Madison, played by Bella Thorne, happen to get her just desserts? Well, if you've ever, will there be a homecoming dance that she, that she rocks up a makeover to her? Will she, will her mother, played by Alison Janney, who is, who is a mother in the barest possible sense, suddenly turn around at some point and start being an actual mother and giving that great advice? If you've ever seen a teen comedy before, you already know all the answers to every single one of these questions. Um, yeah, it's a very unoriginal and, and rather formulaic film. Like, as I was watching it, I could sit down and pin you the beats, like the pop beats and that, to the very second. Uh, they were going on. But that being said, I don't see that completely as a bad thing. Um, originality is very much a, like a prized commodity for us film critics in films. 
But that doesn't mean that like a film that's you know like generic and obvious in its construction is necessarily terrible. Um, like you can get great films from films that follow templates exactly. Again, we just talked about John Wick, for example, there, which mm. is you know your revenge thriller. Yeah, and this is your teen comedy, and it's a it's a really good teen comedy. Um, specifically for three reasons. The first off is that it's charming. Um, it's like it's got a genuine charm to it. Um, like Ari Sandow very much likes to use a, like likes to shoot a film like he likes to shoot in a kind of very fi- filmy way like this is the first time in a long time i've seen a high school uh school like with holes and such and that, that don't look like an actual like high school like we just plopped it down in a high school set or something like that like he kind of makes good use of space and then he also frequently uses some um, like social media um aesthetics and paraphernalia that um to jazz up the screen and introduce things in a way that is going to date the living hell out of this film um, in a couple of years' time, but for now, like it's got charm, it works. It, it, it gives it a different kind of visual identity than just Mean Girls 2.0, essentially. There, um, and also again for charm in terms of the way that um, it works, like with its heart. Um, for example, like a lesser film would have had Bianca's friends be exactly um, who they, like who she's worried they are, as somebody, as people who are just using her to make themselves look hotter and popular. Um, but the film itself never does that. Like it. Like they don't, they don't completely disagree with the concept. But at the same time, they're shown to be genuine friends with her, genuinely care for her, like you know, and want to be you know, friends and such. And that there, uh, take her into account, are willing to drop like dates and that to be with her and help try and cheer her up. Like that, that, that kind of niceness and honesty works. But like Wes, for example, um, is like redeems himself over the film. Like he kind of stops being a giant sexist dick essentially back there. But there's still, like, there's still elements of that there, but in a way that it builds up to it and it earns it. Like, e- e- like there's a kind of honesty to a lot of the film, essentially. There. It's nice and charming. The second is its wit. Um, I, this is a very funny film. Not a gut buster and not, not a kind of set piece comedy, like where you, know, like, you get little laughs leading up to big extended sequence laugh segments there. Um, although there, there are one or two scenes that are like that, but um, they're saved by something we'll get into in a minute. Um, they're there, but the film still work. But the trade-off is that there's consistency. Like instead of it having like you know, like big laughs and then long stretches where there's just kind of silence, um, there's a lot of like there's consistent. Like I laughed consistently at various levels for, for a lot a good length of this film, um, as did many others as well. My screening, incidentally, which was pretty much full um, for whatever that's worth. Um, like it's very funny, and also it works in. Social media and teenage things like stuff like references to Facebook and Twitter and that for the first time in a film in a long while that didn't make me just kind of curl up in my skin and go like, oh, the old people are trying to reference the hip young kids things, you know, like Birdman's constant talk of social media as some kind of horrifying ghost or chefs endless bend over backwards attempts to please it kind of way. This kind of instead just depicts social media as a way as a thing that happens, like as a thing of teen, like as a teenager's thing, like a thing that we use, like, you know, you're using. So when they drop, like, they drop stuff like Instagram and Facebook and that, it feels somewhat natural instead of just like a kind of, oh, look how hip and cool we are or oh, look at how evil the internets are and such. Um, again, gonna date the film a lot in a few years, but right now it works. It feels like, like, it, it feels relatively natural. Even the inevitable, like, teachers and that go stuff like, when I was your age, we didn't have emoticons, we had facial expressions, learn them, type things, like, cause again, the script and the performances of that are funny enough to make it work. Um, instantly speak up performance wise, um, Robbie Armell is great as Wes, Bella Thorne does another wonderfully brilliant bitchy turn as Madison. Again, for lack of a better word, bitchy. Um, like, 
like essentially like taking the kind of role that she started to play in Alexander Mattel Bohob or No Go Very Bad Day from last year and then ratching it up to like you know teen like teen comedy mean girls kind of alpha-ness there as well um also Alison Janney <coughs> Alison Janney is really funny with what little she gets to do um but then again what do you expect that's Alison Janney of course she'll kill it um but <coughs> the other third, the third and final reason why the Duff works and why it really works is May fucking Whitman, who absolutely kills it. Like, again, like, I adore her. Uh, I, like, I adore her and stuff like that. And she is on fire here in, like, I think it's her first lead role in a film, actually, as well. Or in anything, as far as I'm aware. And, like, she seems determined to not waste it. And so she throws herself into this thing, committing to the ever-loving crap about anything the, the script asks us to do, whether that be snarky awkward like upset if there's, there's an extended sequence where she has like you know where they're going through, where they're going through the makeover segment night where, you know, where she tries on different clothes to get a feel of herself and she's asked to sexually come on to a mannequin like pretending it's a guy she dated for and it shouldn't be funny but may whitman commits so much for in the end i was just laughing like a lunatic there as well like because she is so like she essentially weaponizes that natural charm and likability she has to like extreme proportions to extent like she's almost daring the viewer to not like, like to not find Bianca charming and root forable. Um, and then which then allows her comic talents and especially her gift for facial expressions. My God, she's able to like just do so much with, fa- with her face in this film um, to like, yeah, to blindside you knock even further. Like I have a think this will be a very good film anyway, but Mae Whitman is what pushes it up into being a great film that I really, really, really enjoyed going to. Like, she is phenomenal here. And in a just world, this will be the kind of performance that, like, puts, that sets her up for, like, like, as one of the next big stars of comedy if she wanted, if she wanted it to. Like, if she wanted to go off and be a leading actress and stuff like that. She is amazing here. Okay. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So yeah. That's the yeah. Duff. <laughs> that is the Duff. Uh, Callum, very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> I mean very, very quickly. Could you give us... I'm oh, sorry, did I talk you... too long again? Uh, it's all right. Um, but <laughs> yeah, just, just, just quicker, more succinct for this one, your review of the film you've seen that was called While We Young. Yes, uh, new Noah Baumbach film, which, um, full disclosure before we start here, I have not actually seen any Noah Baumbach films until this one. Uh, well, I mean, I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox, which he co-wrote, and Madagascar 3, which he rewrote at least 60 pages of and is the only credit to writer, but I've not actually seen a Noah Baumbach film. Um, I do plan on fixing that. I do plan on watching Francis Ha so I can find out which side of that debate I'm on. Um, instead, wait, instead, is it you, Owen, who hates Francis Ha or is that James? Um, I can't no, I, we both did. I mean, I kind of appreciate what it was doing and I don't think it's a badly made film. I just think everything about it was ho- horrible. I hated it. Right, okay. Everything. Okay, good. I look forward to getting in on that debate then. Um, anyway, so stars Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts as a forty-something as a forty-something couple who have who are kind of in a bit of a rut in their life. They they miss wildness and compassion, like and spontaneity and stuff from out there. Especially since their um, only other married couple friends have just had a baby, and are that kind of married couple who with a baby who go on and on about how amazing it is to have a baby and how everybody should totally have a baby. Why not? Um, so. By chance, uh, because Ben Stiller here as well is a documentary is a documentarian um, who lectures at universities from time to time. They stumble upon Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried as a young, like twenty-something hipster couple who are big fans of Ben Stiller and want to like and they, and the two start and the two married couple start hanging out. 
start um, learning a bit from one another. Like um, Ben Still and Naomi Watts start to feel younger. They start to feel more relevant. They start to enjoy like the kind of they enjoy their spontaneity. Um, Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried kind of like having them around because Ben Stiller is some kind of apparent hero to Adam Driver here. Um, conflict arises, however, when Ben Stiller starts to get very paranoid that um, Adam Driver might be using him to further his own documentary career and try to steal his life out from him. Um, it, it's essentially, like, much of the film for me is very much a quote, like, reminds me a lot of a quote from Losing My Edge, Bell City Sound System, which is relevant since James Murphy scored the film, um, specifically of, and I'm losing my edge to better-looking people with better ideas and more talent that are actually really, really nice. Um, and that's what a lot, of, and that's what the two, the first two thirds of the film seems to be. Of jo- like when Josh Hanoi does kick in, it very much seems to be kind of unfounded. Like Adam Driver is kind of a dick, but um, he's young, and that kind of works. That kind of thing. Like otherwise, he's mostly fine. Um, it's rather funny. Um, ben Stiller's great, um, like nicely low key and reserved. Um, Adam Driver is finally in a film in which that doesn't suck, which lets me go, which allows me to actually say I like Adam Driver. Um, the problem is the final third. The final third does not sit right with me. And it took a long while for me to try and figure out why it didn't. Um, but I think I've got a theory here. So, um, like, if anybody, if, I, if any of you have actually seen the film, then um, you can feel free to tell me I'm completely wrong about this here. But my issue is I think the final third gets too judgmental. Um, it, see, again, why initially starts off as having, like, Ben Stiller's fear be paranoia be kind of unfounded um the film even opens up with a quote explicitly stating this like film from uh, like a like a four-page quote from a play about of an old man being worried about young people coming and stealing his, his things and stuff about that um the problem is it has to vindicate ben stiller in order to generate conflict which then leads to a final third in which the film starts arguing about authenticity and how authenticity is a thing to be prided over everything else, and how Ben Stiller is authentic because he was young and he's honest and he sticks to his principles, but Adam Driver is not because he's willing to fudge the truth slightly and is also young. So therefore, stuff, and so therefore, by extension, his enjoyment of things like vinyl and um, like and street parties and like uh, dr- drug and like drug sessions out there is just him trying to be a hipster poser kind of deal. But uh, but Ben Stiller's older. Why is it? He was there. He did these things for real. Adam Driver's just some young kid who's trying to get in on something. It feels very much like an old man passing judgment on like on a younger generation there. And I don't like it's, that. It feels it too... seems it seems to shite, to be honest. Yeah. From the way you've described it. Yeah. The problem is like again, there's even this giant long segment essentially where Adam Driver and Ben Stiller debate the back and forth the ethics of authenticity out there. Which seems mm. that Ben Stiller win, only for the next scene to then kind of have its cake and eat it to go like, well actually maybe Ben Stiller's kind of wrong and that but again in a way it feels insincere. It doesn't work. It loses sight of it like of its fears of aging, of wanting to try and remain relevant. Like like of of married couples are trying to stay fresh. Like, again, not exactly, um, like, huge, different mm-hmm. material, but stuff that felt more honest than, yeah. than, than not... an, like, than an old man on the edge of his seat, like, like, like looking down going, yeah. eh, kids today with their vinyls and stuff. And that. Um, also, not having fact is that the last shot is bad. The last shot is really, really bad. It's the kind of last shot I initially, like, I'll admit, initially I laughed at because of the absurdity until it held. Like, and it held on it so long and I realised, Oh, he's trying to make a point. Uh, yeah, that that's cute, Barnback. That's cute that you think you're making a legitimate point here. Go back, go back to being an old man. There we go. Yeah, I but think you like, won't enjoy Francis Ha on the basis of what you've said. 
I'm yes. looking forward. I'm looking forward to trying more films because again, the first two thirds I really enjoyed. I think it's quietly funny, very well done with good characters. But again, the last third is where it falls apart. I feel um, it doesn't work for me out there. But, okay. Okay. but hey, what hey, what do I know? Yeah. I don't. I, I it's gotten critical acclaim, and I guess I just don't like films. Yeah. <laughs> what what do you know? Uh, <laughs> never mind. Nothing. Nothing. No. No, Noah Baumbach would say nothing. No. Um, and and who are we to doubt him? Yeah. Instead, let's talk about uh, a film that we're all going to get angry about yes. then, shall we? For various reasons. Uh, yes, let's talk about Fast and Furious 7, or Furious 7, depending on where you, you're watching the film. The seventh film, and I think when the first one came out, you would have been laughed out of, <laughs> of the, the room for suggesting this would spin off another six films. Um, but yes, so uh, Vin Diesel's character... Dominic Toretto uh, is back with his his team of his family. Uh, yes, his, his, his family. family. His family. Yeah. Although he's he's not directly related to all of them. It's this family in a metaphorical <laughs> term, not a yeah. literal term for family. I mean, um, it is also a literal term for family. It's his sister. The continuity of these films is like the Saw movies. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not even a joke. No, no, it is. <laughs> it, 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 so okay, oh, let me. I'll, I'll no, 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 not like, not like the sword joke. Like, like it is, it is like the sword movies, basically. Yeah. I was going to start. Talk, I'll do this quickly because we've got about four minutes left. Um, Sorry, go, 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 go. Fast and Furious Seven has maybe the best opening shot of any movie, like any action movie in recent memory. It is so unabashedly stupid. That yes. It sets the tone really well, and like the plot itself. It is about, uh, like, it's, it's been sold to this revenge thing, which it is, but also it's the plot of the Fast and Furious crew trying to steal this, uh, government technology called God's Eye from a terrorist for, uh, a US government official named Mr. Nobody, played by Kurt Russell. And, a beating mis- Kurt Russell. It's just a Mission Impossible movie, but with cars. And hmm. because the, the series has evolved, like, the series, the Fast and Furious Seven, really uh, is sorely lacking the touch of Justin Lin, who is the director for the far, the, the from Tokyo Drift to Fast and Furious Six. He is the guy that transformed Fast and Furious from some ridiculous movie once uh, into uh, crazy genre hopping possible thing. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, James Wan, who's taken over, who is the director of the first Saw movie, uh, incidentally, uh, can't quite match up to, like, Justin Lin is a phenomenal action director in a really oh, yeah. under, in an understated way, in a way that it doesn't get enough credit, uh, and, uh, James Wan doesn't quite have, um, that level of assured touch. He has way more experimental digital touches that make everything kind of ridiculous, you know. Uh, can't quite make the action scenes and the tensions work as well. But there's one scene where there's like a fight inside a bus that's falling off a cliff. It's it, it's <laughs> astounding. And it, also, Tony fucking Jar is in that fight. Oh, that's yes. so good. It's so yeah. good. And then the the ending is just the most heart wrenching thing. It's the yeah. most it's the most Fast and Furious way to send off a character ever, and I love yeah. it. I like, like, like it's the most perfect. cheesy, obvious, on the nose way, and it works like fucking gangbusters. Well, because everything about the Fast and Furious movies, at least since three, yeah, uh, yeah that, that's been... what I mean. Like, like that's the thing well, about no, Fast and Furious. I'm trying to talk... sincere. Sorry, uh, sorry. Uh, um, it, it's this really yeah, sincere and earnest thing, and the whole like every <sighs> other scene is either 
men punching <laughs> each other, driving cars into each other's faces, or longing looks of love and family and people saying, you're the only people that matter to me in the world. And yeah. that's the whole movie. It's amazing. They made seven movies out of this thing. It's great. Let it continue forever. It's Do you think it, they will continue it? Yeah. It, it? There's plans to. and It's making so much money yeah. at the box office. It's probably... Yeah, Dame, Dame Helen Mirren wants to be a villain here. So naturally, you make of a mother of Jason Statham and Luke Evans in the next film, and then make nine and ten space and transdimensional hopping, like, respectively. Boom. Check, please, Universal. Uh, I've heard, was, uh, it might have, did you say this on Twitter, Jackson, that they should make it like the state it joins forces with Vin Diesel or something like that? Uh, well, well, this is getting into spoilers, but I feel like well, that movie would have had a very, very different ending um, if Paul Walker hadn't passed away. Yeah. Because yeah. it's clear that the real villain of the this plot is going to be Kurt Russell at some point. Like, the obvious. Mm, mm, mm. So blindingly obvious from the moment he walked in the room. And I was expecting the movie to end with um, Statham and Vin Diesel teaming up against him. But no, they just, le- they just left uh, Kurt Russell hanging for the sequel. Because I-, I imagine the movie was way more explicit with its cliffhangers in the wider unit, the wider Fast and Furious universe than, um, <laughs> than it it, then it had to be this time because they they just threw that stuff to the side and rightfully uh, gave Paul Walker a fitting send off. And I'm excited for it. I'm I don't know. It, you know if you like Fast and Furious movies already. If you if you don't like them, then I guess I can't really convince you. But they're just very earnest, very uh, emotionally honest action movies in a way that I find very refreshing. And they've got a super diverse cast. It's great. They're great. They're great. Why don't you, I, I, Owen? Owen, what's your deal? What's my deal? Uh, action in them is fine. I haven't got a problem with the action. It's just everything that happens to exist in the Fast and Furious films around those. I can't, it's just, I mean, I love action films. I love action films. I love cheap action films. I love expensive action films. I love slow burning thrillers. I love all kinds of action movies. But there's just something about the Fast and Furious franchise. And I wish I could tell you, Jackson, exactly what it is. But I, I think it's that overly sentimental vibe, which is, I can't, I just can't get on board with it. It doesn't do anything for me. And it takes up a lot of the Fast and Furious films. And I don't think they're great actors, to be honest. I think Van Diesel's moments where he's overly sentimental are basically him staring at somebody with his mouth open saying, uh, uh, family, family, uh, family. I just don't like it. I just don't like it. I did, I did at times think um, Vin Diesel had more emotional range playing Groot. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. But, um, I, I mean, the, the thing about the Fast and Furious films that I do like is the fact they do get, like you mentioned, a diverse cast, and they get quite big names involved, you know, for the, for the genre as well. Like having The Rock and Jason Statham have a fight in uh, an office building. It's just fucking... That is what you want. That is in what the you first want ten minutes, no less. Uh, that just completely um, set the tone. Fifteen minutes. The, the, the first hour of the movie is just moving plot threads, and then the final 90 yeah. minutes is just action. Like, there's so much plot yeah. bullshit that's been left yeah. over from the last six movies, which is great. I love it. I love that... Because yeah. they're secretly the most plot-heavy movies around. <laughs> just, oh, yeah. Because the rocks in hospital, and uh, uh, Paul Walker's a dad and um the other thing i don't remember then the government comes in (laughs) it's just some great lines as well though i mean 
the Rock um, has some good lines as well, as he always does, and he delivers them really well. But I thought Jason Statham was brilliant. I really yeah. like want Jason Statham to be a bigger action star than he is, because he's his time, has, uh, his time has passed. He had I think moment. that's the only issue, yeah. Uh, and I know the Expendables films are kind of quite sort of big and fairly successful, but I just think he needs his own no, franchise. No, but make Crank Free! He's way better. Yes. He's way better yes. being B movie cool actor guy who shows up. So, like, if he was suddenly in massive action movies, it would. I don't know. I, I, Crank exists. The bank job exists. Fast and Furious yeah. Seven exists. Jason Snatch Statham exists. is doing well. Snatch, yes. Uh, yeah. Although um, you still haven't watched Snatch, have you? No. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, I think realistically we can't say much more about Fast and Furious Seven. Nope. Um, no, but but especially one quote. One quote, which was, you thought this was going to be a fist fight. Oh, I love that line. No, a street fight. Street fight. Was it a street fight? Oh, yeah. But yeah that loved, was it, loved it so much, you can't even remember it. <laughs> and then, and then, yeah. and then later, he's, doesn't he say like, ah, oh. oh yeah, oh yeah. yes, no, Vin Diesel says the same thing. Like he pulls out a gun and goes, you thought this was going to be a street fight. It's just a cool moment. And then later on, Vin Diesel pulls out a gun and he goes, you thought this was going to be a street fight. And there's a big pause and he throws the gun away and goes, yes. well, you were right. <laughs> You're damn right. And then the, 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 the music yeah. from the Matrix Revolutions plays. Yeah, the choir in the background. <laughs> as the rock, oh. as um, Vin Diesel and Jason Statham punch each other. It's great. Oh, I love, I love, I love this dumb fucking series. I do. End it's this brilliant. podcast. End this podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's that's the end of that review. Uh, quickly before we go, let's have some recommendations for um, the week ahead. I'm going to go for Sunday afternoon uh, or early evening. On film uh, on E4, sorry, and Big is on. <laughs> yeah, have you seen? I know this is slightly on a tangent again. Have you seen the clip of Tom Hanks and James Corden doing no. every Tom Hanks film in something like six minutes? No, it's actually surprisingly good, mainly because of the bit where James Corden and Tom Hanks do the, you know, the uh, the. Uh, what's it called? You know when the two of them together in big do the little piano yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. That bit is just that's really good. It's worth watching just for that. I think that clip. Cool. Uh, Owen. Uh, yeah. So this is reliant on me actually managing to publish the podcast before the film is actually on TV and people <laughs> listen to it within a few hours. But uh, on Thursday. At 1.50 a.m., so kind of like Friday morning, Thursday evening, on Film 4, as part of the, their Studio Ghibli series, they're showing My Neighbours, The Yamadas, which is from 1999, and it's basically like a sketch show, but it's hilarious, and it's the most underrated Studio Ghibli film they made. Why, I think. Why can't they put those on at a decent time? <laughs> yeah, okay. no, they, they, they're showing some fantastic films over that season. So Okay, uh, Callum, yourself, what are you recommending? Okay, um, on Netflix, because I don't, I don't keep up with the TVs, um, Wreck-It Ralph was just added. God damn it! I knew you were gonna pick that! I knew you were gonna pick it! Okay, fair enough. You did, you did know. Okay, um, uh, would you, would you like to take that and shall I pick Spy Kids 3? Oh, I, no, you take Wreck-It Ralph, I'll take Spy Kids 3. <laughs> do you want to do Star Trek Into Darkness instead? No, I want to talk about how ridiculous Spy Kids 3 is. Fuck. Right. Okay, uh, yeah, Wreck-It Ralph, uh, yeah, Wreck-It Ralph, which is still the best film released from the second Disney Renaissance. Um, yeah, really good. I, I mean, I don't think I need to describe more about that. But watch it. Watch Wreck-It Ralph. No, and Jackson, you're recommending Spy, Spy Kids 3. 
Uh, well, apparently, <laughs> apparently I am. So, watch, um, no, Spy Kids three is uh, Spy Kids one is a really good movie, very good, very great on all levels. Works. Spy Kids two is fun time. Spy Kids three is probably bad, but man, is it entertainingly dumb. Elijah Wood shows up Rodriguez, in, it, so. in two minutes. Yep, and Spike Kids 4 is un- un- unwatchable garbage with Ricky Gervais. Uh, <laughs> but Spike Kids 3 hits that Robert Rodriguez sweet spot where he still knew how to make films, kind of, but also was falling apart in these very interesting ways. I- Spike Kids 3 is great. There's also lo- uh, lots of monologues about family. Uh, so for fans of Fast and Furious 7 and family... I, I remember actually having like Spy yeah, Kids three Spikers on DVD, on DVD with the pe- with, like, with the terrible paper three D glasses that didn't work as well. So okay. just just I should know I was a stupid kid. <laughs> so yeah, that's all for this week's podcast. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Um, and join us again around the same time next week for another podcast. Which uh, is our corridor of praise episode. It is indeed. John Claude Van Damme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which finally. will be an exciting one. Finally got round to getting him in there. Um, before we go, uh, Jackson, Callum, Owen, anything you want to plug quickly? Uh, I am on a website called Abnormal Mapping. That's where I write about and podcast about games. I do some film writing on Flixus.com, but apart from that, that's me. All right, bye. <laughs> I'm, I'm still he, he, disappointed he, that that website's not about maps. <laughs> he, 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 does, he does some amazing work on news stories on Flixist. Just put them out there. No. Well, okay. well, when, when he's allowed to um, you, can, you can follow myself on Twitter at Callum Petch uh, I write for the site as you unfortunately know by now <laughs> um, and Screen One my weekly radio show with my friend Lucy Mia on Whole Fire Radio Mondays at 9pm and it will be on Mondays at 9pm starting this Monday again we're going back to actual proper time now that university is back to normal so yeah Excellent. listen Please, lovely. I've got a lot of work into that thing. <laughs> lovely. Well done, everyone. Thanks uh, for contributing. Uh, thanks to everyone who's listened. Ego, enjoy our new music. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, on Twitter at failedcritics, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash failedcritics. Thanks for listening.